The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Remember Brunstrom's six stages of recovery. Remember, she was real good at saying, the first thing you're gonna hit is flaccidity. And often you worked in acute care. A lot of times these people may eventually make an okay recovery, but initially at least they're, they're flaccid. And then as they move through the six stages of recovery, spasticity starts to increase. But at some point, spasticity plateaus. And when does it plateau? It plateaus when they plateau, that natural plateau, the resolution of the penumbra, whatever you want to call it. So when they don't seem to be getting any better, spasticity plateaus. Now, the reason a lot of clinicians think it doesn't plateau is that contracture doesn't plateau. Disability, pain, all those other things don't. So spasticity is not progressive. If the infarct is static, then spasticity is also static. Before we get into our topic for this episode of spasticity measurement, let me review the NeuroHub episodes, part one and part two. In episode one, we learned about the NeuroHub business model and how they follow their hearts for career satisfaction. We talked about their OT process, driver rehabilitation, and cognition and vision, and the important relationship between those two for optimal function. We learned about neuroscientists and other medical professionals who inform and inspire us. And in part two, we talked about some non-OT books that inform OT practice. We talked about how the NeuroHub uses brain-computer interface technology in stroke and brain injury recovery. We also learned some more about the behind-the-scenes information about the NeuroHub locations and staff. And then we talked about the roles that sleep, gut health, and heart rate variability play in recovery and health. And we also talked about nature, exercise, and community as being important for achieving optimal health and recovery.
So are we sort of kind of ready? What do yeah, you think? ready or not. <laughs> <laughs> Here I come. We're never going to outgrow this, are we? No. It's going to be like this forever. Okay. So, hey, Deb Baddettstel, how you doing? Pete Levine, I'm great. How are you? Oh, by the way, American College of Rehabilitation Medicine, I'm doing a talk for them in September. So if you're a member of ACRM or you're planning to go, you should go to my talk. Thanks. That was a public service announcement from one of the co-hosts who was self-promoting his own stupid talk, even though he doesn't make any money off of it. So don't worry about that. Just come to his talk. Thank you very much. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. May I humbly ask why you were late today? I mean, I don't care. It's, it's your life, but I'm just... <laughs> curious i'm curious you may ask will you answer i, I will answer you so don't have I, to no I, was, <laughs> I had some personal things to take care of this morning but the, i had the entire afternoon to prepare for today or this evening's podcast which is what i was happily doing and then a friend called and of course that turned into a good conversation so i had to do that and then all of a sudden i realized i was hungry and i hadn't eaten lunch so it's hard for me to do the podcast when my stomach's growling and I just really wanted some food. Wow. Good. It's kind of lame, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not at all lame. Um, yeah. So my friend, can if we could just talk about this for a minute, because part of the conversation that got so good is she's a retired COTA and she has a friend whose husband had a cardiac event. He ended up in the hospital, ended up having some, some a test some surgery, another cardiac event while he was in the hospital. Oh boy. Maybe there's some cognitive stuff going on there. And so he went through rehab and they were satisfied with rehab, except for his balance is not that great. And they sent him home. And so we're talking and he's impulsive. And so he can't be left alone. And then she told me that the occupational therapist for the home care company discharged him. And I, it disturbs me when I hear things like that. And I get puzzled with things like that. And I, I wonder about the thinking behind it. It makes me think maybe that's part of the reason why our profession is not respected or valued. I don't know. And so of course I hear the story and it's concerning to me. And they they discharged him. You think that it may have been too early. Well, maybe he fell going in the house and then he fell again at home. And so with all of that going on and she can't leave him alone because he's impulsive, if the insight isn't there to kind of halt his behavior and he's going to keep falling and she can't leave him home alone, she works. So I just wonder how that's going to work out. And I just question why the OT would discharge somebody's therapy if there's a cognitive issue that could be addressed. Yeah. And it, doesn't surprise me at all that if they have heart problems, they're going to have cognitive problems because Mm -hmm. the heart pumps blood. And one thing we know about the brain is it loves itself some blood. It does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. So what, what's, what are they going to do now? What's the plan? I don't know if they have a plan. Mm. And I, I feel like these people are at the mercy of the healthcare providers who are helping them. And, um, I did, I did say to my friend, I think that there's an opportunity for healthcare professionals, people who are familiar with how the system works to maybe start putting together some opportunities to educate people on our healthcare system as it relates to them 
if they have a need. So you're saying like if therapists ha- have this insight, both from the perspective of somebody who's a clinician, but also somebody who needs healthcare, they would be in the best position to be advocates for the right thing being done. Yeah. I, I This isn't really a political show, but sometimes I wonder if the OPTA, sorry, that's the Ohio Physical Therapy Association, the AOTA, the American Occupational Therapy Association, and the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association, does their due diligence in terms of advocacy. I've always been fascinated by the way that chiropractors, you know, there was this whole idea that chiropractors were all quacks. They didn't know what they were doing and chiropractors disagreed. So what they did was they pooled their money and they went to Capitol Hill and they bought a lot of lobbyists and they put their money where their mouth was and they flexed their muscles. I do not understand where the national organizations for OT and PT are on this. They should be climbing all over. That's probably not a good metaphor when it comes to the Capitol, but they should be up there like really advocating to save our professions. I mean, it may come down to that. I know the American Physical Therapy Association is, I think it's in Fairfax, Virginia, which is just outside of DC. I think the OT organization is also just outside of DC. They're not there for no reason. They're supposed to be knocking on doors. And if they need more money to make this happen, then go to your constituency, us, and ask for more money and then hire some high test lobbyists to go get the job done. Yeah, I know that your association seems to do better than ours does, but I also know that they partner up and advocate for some things together. I don't I don't know. I just wonder. I've gone to conferences and there's a person at the American Occupational Therapy Association who who looks into Medicare changes and and educates us on those changes and I know a lot of times in theory, those things seem good, but then when you hear about what's going on in actual practice, what's supposedly supposed to be happening is not happening. And it seems like therapists are being abused in their positions. And then the patients who need the services are not getting the services that they need. Yeah. Therapists are are being abused. I agree with that. You know, just the productivity issues in in many settings for rehab clinicians is just redunculous. It's not unusual for a facility to require somebody to be 90%, 95% productive, which for those of you that are not in rehab or not in healthcare, it means you don't have time to write your notes. It means that you have to go home to do a lot of work. And it means you can't go to the bathroom because you don't have any time. Mm-hmm. What you talked about was there's people that talk to you about Medicare guidelines and Medicaid guidelines, I find that to be the tail wagging the dog or the cart leading the horse. Why aren't we flexing the muscle to tell Medicare and Medicaid what it is? Do, do people not believe that physical activity as defined in OT and PT practice is necessary? Because if that's what their claim is, then um, maybe they should read some research some of the time. Because there's lots of research that says that it does everything good and very little bad, if anything, that I can't even think of any, if you do it right. And that's why you need the clinician there, especially when somebody has had a heart attack, has heart problems, has brain injury problems. Yeah, I don't get it. Time to flex our muscles. You know, I used to do this joke in the seminars that, that I did where I go, 
you know, we really need to uh, unionize. Come on, everybody. And I'd be like, unionize. I'd jump up on the desk, unionize. And everybody look at me like I was weird. And, and then I go uh, and then I would act embarrassed. But of course, it was all premeditated. It's all part of the show, all part of the big show, Deb. And uh, what I found was that there was a lot of therapists who kind of understood what I was saying. You know, nurses have unions, don't they? Pilots have unions. Flight attendants have unions. Unions work. And I'm not a communist, but I do think that if we pool our resources, we can get some stuff done. Okay, should we move on? Can we? Yes. Thanks for letting me say all of that. I, I felt it more cathartic than you probably did. I don't know. I just, I love people and I love our professions. And I especially love when we work together, like all of us, including the patients, and we all work together and we have good outcomes for everybody. And I remember a time when it was like that. I hear you, sister. So, so we're going to start a movement. We have so many movements in this podcast that we want to start. <laughs> we do. That I think maybe our, we're watering down the movement tolerance of the fine folks at home. Um, so what are we supposed to be talking about today? Well, today we are supposed to be talking about spasticity measurement. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm, I, I think I'm ready. Okay, good. So we did a whole episode on spasticity. So this would be a good adjunct to that episode. It's great to treat spasticity to hopefully reduce spasticity. Uh, the question is, if you're not measuring it, then how do you know that you're reducing it? And it's weird because clinically, um, a lot of OTs, PTs, um, but geez, just clinicians in general, nurses, whoever, even doctors don't measure it enough. And when they do, maybe they don't measure it accurately. So maybe that's what we can help out with. Yeah, we talk about it in our notes, high tone, low tone tight at end range. So the word tone is bothersome to me just because I'll assume that you haven't had any brain injuries, Deb, or any other things that would affect this quote tone. And yet you have tone. There is normal tone. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about today is really spasticity. And of course, the sort of opposite of that, which would be flicidity, hypertonic, hypotonic, all these words tone, I don't like it because it's nobody's defined it really well. And I think there are people that have, but they're way over my pay grade. I prefer flaccid, normal, or spastic. That's, those are the three things. Nor and the only way I'd use tone is with normal. But I don't know if you agree with that. Well, that certainly simplifies everything. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should start with flaccidity. So there's two kinds of paralysis after a brain injury. Spastic paralysis, that's when there's so much spasticity they can't move. They're paralyzed. And then there's flaccid paralysis. Spasticity is not the worst thing. Flaccidity is. Spasticity can be treated. Flaccidity that goes on for more than a couple of weeks after the brain injury indicates a poor recovery. It hurts bone density because there's no pull of the muscle on the bone. It usually leads to subluxation. Why? Because the muscles that hold the shoulder together are flaccid. And flaccid means like they're, there's nothing there. It's the weirdest feeling when you range people that are flaccid. It's just gross because there's nothing. And uh, in the lower extremity, of course, flaccidity means for sure you're going to be in a wheelchair because otherwise you'll just collapse. That leg will collapse. The only good thing with regard to flaccidity compared to a whole lot of spasticity is there's no soft tissue shortening. There's no contracture because the muscle isn't contracting and therefore isn't in a shortened position. And the shortened position is what causes 
contracture. And just to define it, contracture is an inability to move that muscle through its full range of motion because it's no longer muscle. It's now more like tendon. It's fibrous tissue. It happens really quickly, by the way. I mean, within a few days of having a muscle that's spastic, it starts to lose sarcomeres. These are the contractile units of muscles, but it also starts to turn itself into this fibrous tissue. So anyway, so flaccidity is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from contracture. So we've, we've had conversations before about range of motion and spasticity. And so yeah, we, in have. Light, we have. Yeah. So in light of what you just said, would you say that performing passive range of motion to prevent a contracture would be of benefit? I was hoping to uh, stay away from this subject because I think in your bones, Deb, if I, if I read you correctly, and as George Costanza would say, and I think I do, <laughs> uh, I don't think that you agree with me on this, but I, I want to take you through a thought experiment because I thought this question might come up. Okay. Can I just say, yes, it's, not, yes, it's not about agreement or disagreement. It's about trying to make sense of this in my head. And if it's confused in my head, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. So I'll just have the courage to speak up and get clarification. There are no dumb questions. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I just wonder if our listeners are feeling like you're saying that's a dumb question. I hope I'm not. Okay, I just can too. tell because we've had this thing where the Cochrane Review came out twice and said that stretching doesn't reduce contracture and it doesn't reduce spasticity. By the way, I should point out without your permission, I contacted the lead author in the 2017 revision of the Cochrane Review. Did she email me back? No, she hasn't. But I want to get her on because she has a audio segment on the last iteration, which is in the show notes of the spasticity episode, where she talks about how it doesn't reduce contracture and doesn't reduce spasticity. And so instead of me trying to convince the world, I thought maybe she'd come on and she'd convince the world. She's at University of Sydney in Australia. Um, it's always hard doing podcasts because I've done a couple in Australia and they're like a day ahead of us. It's so weird. It's they're in different times and different mm -hmm. days. So it's yeah, like, it, it has to be carefully coordinated. Exactly. But okay. still, I'd like she's a physiotherapist over there. They're physiotherapists. I'd like to have her come on and nail it to the wall from her perspective. I think that would be helpful for a lot of us. So moving on. So I'm going to do a thought experiment. You know, Einstein did a lot of thought experiments. And uh, this is not going to be an Einstein-worthy thought experiment, but I think it'll help us uh, come to some agreement. So imagine you work in skilled nursing. I think the word understanding is better than agreement. Okay. Okay. So can we come to an understanding? I but hope we, so. But we can also agree to disagree. That's fine. Um, because there are good reasons to stretch. It's just that it's not going to reduce contracture formation and it's not going to reduce spasticity. So here's the thought experiment. You work in skilled nursing. You, Deb Batistella. But I have. Know, you have. And you're, you're, you're really, your primary job now is education. It's, you know, in an OT program. Um, but you want to keep your, your toes wet. Is that what it's called? You're like you want to keep your beak wet. You want to keep involved enough in clinical practice so that when you go to OTs in the making, students, um, you can kind of say, well, this happened to me the other day and bring that right. And so that's one of the reasons I'm in the clinic still. I teach, but I want to also 
they kind of know what the sweat and the grit and the actual issues are. So you decide you're going to work in skilled nursing. You do it per diem. Maybe you're in there two or three Saturdays a month. And, uh, you know, it's vacation money for you. And it's great. It, It keeps you in touch with patients and with working in a team. So you go in one Saturday and you get your caseload in the morning. And as usual, you're an OT, so you're there before anybody else is because you got to do feeding and dressing. Okay, so you go in there and you notice that Mrs. Smith is on your caseload. And she's been on your caseload before. You know exactly who it is. This is a long-term resident, but they keep coming back to you because there's problems with her. So you quickly go through your head what it was. It was an anoxic brain injury which is a form of brain injury where there's not enough oxygen to the brain. And unlike most other brain injuries, um, anoxic brain injury is really fascinating to me. It doesn't hit one part of the brain, like if you have a car accident or a stroke, it hits every part of the brain almost equally. It's almost like a sponge that seeps into every part of it. The brain scans are fascinating. She had an anoxic brain injury. They're often related to, you know, somebody does drugs, they swallow their own vomit, they can't breathe for a while. They get a lack of oxygen to the brain. So this quickly goes through your head. It was caused, as you remember, by an overdose. She's been in the facility fully dependent since 2016. So you decide to see her first. You don't even have to look up her room number. You know it's room 13, bed B. She's in your usual position. She's in a fetal position. Her shoulders are internally rotated. Her elbows are flexed. Of course, her forearms are supinated. And her wrists and fingers are flexed. So she's just in that position all the time. Okay. She's on caseload to do treatment and set her up for a maintenance program to address the one concern that everybody has, limited passive range of motion. You go in and you talk to her for a while. You know there's not going to be any response, but you begin to do the range of motion. Not much has changed. You get to about 90 of elbow extension. You feel a hard end feel. You then do the Ashworth within the available range of motion. And her score is about a three, maybe a little bit higher than a three, considerable spasticity through the available range of motion. Now, let me ask you two questions. Wait, apparently there's three questions. Will a rigorous stretching program, including stretch done by splints, reduce Mrs. Smith's spasticity? That would be my question. No. Okay, no, great. Will a rigorous stretching program, including stretch done by splints, reduce contracture formation? No, according to what you just told me. Okay. And, and if just as a clinician, you would agree that even if you did the greatest stretching program in the world, contractual formation would still happen in her available range of motion. If you have a brain injury by now and you're listening to this, you're probably like, let's turn this off. I want to go to ESPN. What's going on with the Olympics? <laughs> uh, this is getting in the weeds. Okay. Let me ask you the, the killer question. If a regular stretching program, including stretch done with continuously monitored splints, would it have reduced Mrs. Smith's spasticity and or contracture formation if it had been done immediately after her anoxic brain injury? Well, I think the answer has to be no, based on what you already said. Well, don't base it on that. I want to know what you well, think, Tim. Well, I can only make a, a clinical assessment based on information that I'm given. And every time we talk about spasticity, you say that this does not help. Yeah, that's what we teach. So I don't know the answer and I'm trying to figure it out, which is why I keep asking it. <laughs> yeah. So remember, it's not me. It's the Cochrane Review. Well, men- okay. So the Cochrane people. But, but okay, look, I've worked in a lot of skilled nursing facilities with long 
term care people. And it's always the same deal. You know, spasticity goes on 24 seven. Actually, here's something I wanted to mention because in the spasticity episode, I asked you this question and this is so unfair because I'm usually asking 30 people. And so you get 30 people. And I here I put all this pressure on you. Yeah, I got nobody to rely on here. I have nobody whispering in my ear. This is just it's just unfair. I got to go. Anyway, I did ask you a question in that specificity episode, and then I never answered it. I noticed. So, well, maybe I want to answer. You'll either want to do it now. I want to do it now. Yeah, that'd be great. So thank you. Here's the question. And if somebody is spastic during a 24 hour period, is there any time that they're not spastic? That is not with any intervention, baclofen or, oh, I don't know, stretching or Botox? Uh, You did ask that question. And I did listen to that today. Do you think there's any period during that 24 hour cycle? I don't know. My first assumption would be that no, but I feel like this is a trick question. Yeah, maybe it is. Mm -hmm. There is a time. So there was an article that was really well done um, where they measured spasticity throughout the arc of the day, throughout the 24 hour period and when they were sleeping. And it turns out that when you fall asleep, Deb, every muscle, every voluntary muscle in your body completely relaxes. Okay. There's like eight different phases of sleep and I forget all of them, but it's as you're entering the dreamlike state, every voluntary muscle relaxes. What do they call it when the involuntary muscles relax? What is that called? That's called death, Deb. That's okay, death. That's, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the cardiac muscle. Yeah. And- all these other things that the the diaphragm, all the stuff that keeps you alive. Um, so don't let that happen. Wake up before the, that the involuntary stuff. Okay, but the voluntary stuff completely relaxes in every one of. And this was done in stroke. The spastic stroke survivors they also completely relaxed. Now for some of them, it took a little bit longer to completely relax, but they completely relaxed. Think of the clinical implications for that. That splint that you can't get on during the day when they're awake and highly spastic, that you can put on when they're asleep, but you got to ask permission first, because even in a stroke survivor, remember they have a good side and they'll come at you with that good side. They'll think you're attacking them in their sleep. Always ask permission first. Mm -hmm. So spasticity completely wanes during sleep. Now that's got to be pretty important. You could do ranging, you could do splinting, you could do all kinds of things. Here's the flip side. During all the other hours, they are spastic. And what therapists are trying to do is this uphill climb against this 20, well, it's not 24 seven, it's 18 hours out of 24. Is that right? That's uh, 18. Well, you know, I mean, more or less. That, that's like seven hours. Mm-hmm. I had to count it on my fingers because that's how good it, math. I think that deep down I'm an OT. Didn't you guys say that OTs are <laughs> terrible at math? <laughs> I think I know I was going to go to PT school until I found out that calculus was involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, chemistry is involved and mm-hmm. physics is involved. All the physics. We have some physics. Yeah. So here's let me just add one other thing to this mix. So in order for sarcomeric growth to happen, that is sarcomeres are the contractile units of muscles. And for them to expand, for them to get longer in somebody who's spastic, it's different in you or, or I. If, if you're not spastic, muscles do respond very well to stretch. Yoga, Taekwondo, you're, you're going to get more limber. But in somebody who's spastic, the stretch has to be held for 48 hours or longer. And there's only one thing that does that ethically, 
And that's serial casting. Mm -hmm. So we're wasting our time. There are good reasons to stretch. And when we talk about spasticity measurement, whenever you're learning about spasticity measurement or you're teaching it, you always go with the elbow first because there's a relative balance between the triceps and the, and the elbow flexors. I mean, it's not a perfect balance, but the triceps are really strong. In a lot of joints, there's this imbalance, like the gastroconsoleus versus the tibialis anterior at the ankle. Whenever we talk about it or teach it, we always talk about it in the elbow first. So there's three muscles that bend the elbow. I think I got this right. The biceps, the brachioradialis, and the brachialis. Let's say the biceps is the one that is fasting. Well, there's two other muscles in there that you'd be stretching and they would respond normally to stretch because they're not spastic. For whatever little crazy anomaly in that person's brain injury, it just didn't hit the brachioradialis and the brachialis. Plus, if you're stretching, you might be stretching things up and down the kinematic chain at the shoulder and the fingers and a whole bunch of other stuff. There is a, a short-term impact of stretch on muscles and that may be worthwhile clinically. It feels good. And there's other structures in there there's um, soft tissue, there's blood vessels, fascia and skin, and all that needs to be arranged too. So I'm not saying they shouldn't stretch. I'm saying, so far as we can tell from the research, don't expect it to reduce contraction formation or reduce spasticity in any long-term way. Thank you for clearing that up. There's that. Okay. So now that we understand about stretching and spasticity, maybe we should move into measuring spasticity. That is what this whole episode was about, wasn't it now? Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody. Um, I do want to- Maybe not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. I have to review just a couple other things. So okay. first of all, the cycle of spasticity and what it is that you're measuring, because you don't want to conflate contracture and measurement of contracture or soft tissue shortening, that is a loss of sarcomere with spasticity. They're completely separate things. One's a very local thing. One has to do with brain injury. So typically what happens is spasticity sets in. And of course, when that happens, they use the limb less because it's spastic. And then we know that if you use a limb less, that leads to learned non-use. The portion of the brain dedicated to that limb shrinks. So then because of that, they use the limb less, which then makes the portion of the brain shrink even more. And so you get this death cycle. Meanwhile, there's soft tissue shortening in the flexors, in the stronger of the two muscle groups. And so that soft tissue shortening then exacerbates the, the loss of use of the limb and the reduction of cortical representation of, that, of those muscles. There is a couple of good things about spasticity. There's actually a bunch of good things, and I'm not going to wolf's law on a and, and as you say, you know, it helps you with functional stuff. But there's another really important one. It's the first indication that something's coming through to the muscle from the central nervous system. Yeah, it's coming from the spinal cord. And if you want to know that process, listen to the spasticity episode. But uh, it's a reverberation of a monosynaptic stretch reflex. But at least you know you got that. So um, I think I've mentioned this before. If you want to tell if the tibialis anterior is coming back, you hold them into dorsiflexion and spasticity is velocity dependent. You bring them rapidly into plantar flexion. And then if there's a quick catch and release out of the tibialis anterior, you know that something's trying to get through. And then you may decide to hedge your bets with some E-stem. You might do some ambulation without the AFO, the ankle foot orthosis. You might do some of it with the AFO. You might measure it more often because you know something's trying to get through. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say either. <laughs> 
Uh, keep in, here's what I'll say. <laughs> keep in mind, remember Brunstrom's six stages of recovery. Remember, she was real good at saying, the first thing you're going to hit is flaccidity. And often you worked in acute care. A lot of times these people may eventually make an okay recovery, but initially at least they're, they're flaccid. And then as they move through the six stages of recovery, spasticity starts to increase. But at some point, spasticity plateaus. And when does it plateau? It plateaus when they plateau, that natural plateau, the resolution of the penumbra, whatever you want to call it. So when they don't seem to be getting any better, spasticity plateaus. Now, the reason a lot of clinicians think it doesn't plateau is that contracture doesn't plateau. Disability, pain, all those other things don't. So spasticity is not progressive. If the infarct is static, then spasticity is also static. The Ashworth, the ways of testing spasticity, uh, that number will not go up. It'll go up in MS and other progressive diseases, but not in a stable infarct, if you will. So that's important because we don't want to conflate spasticity measurement with the development of contracture because they're two different things. And I think I've now said that twice, so maybe I should move on. And let's get to the way- I think it's worth repeating- I mean, not a third time, but I think that hearing <laughs> hearing it twice Good. is helpful. Yeah. The other thing is that if you're going to claim that you're measuring spasticity by doing the modified Ashworth or the Tardu, these things that we're going to talk about, um, keep in mind that your score will be very much different when they're asleep. And in some ways, that's the true baseline. It's when they're asleep when spasticity is completely relaxed. So again, if you want to do the modified Ashworth or some sort of test on them, please ask permission first, because I would say it's unethical to do it in the middle of the sleep. You can't just sneak into somebody's room, be very quiet and do. Yeah. If you know the patient well enough, you might just say in an umbrella statement, hey, you know, Mr. Smith, we know that spasticity reduces during sleep. Can I have permission when you're sleeping to range you? You don't have to say, we're going to do the modified Ashworth and then the Tardu. You can just say, I'm going to range you because we might get some really good stretches when you're sleeping. I'll do it very gently and I'll sing you a lullaby and I promise not to hurt you. And uh, and he'll say, okay, probably. So yeah, don't worry about it. But that true baseline will be done when they're sleeping. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? 
That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Did you, in your research for this episode, did you come across any um, measurements of spasticity that you would like to discuss? Well, I came across a couple things. I found the Wartenberg pendulum test, the pen spasm frequency scale. It's usually used in spinal cord injury, but I think that it's worth talking about. I found the French A activities index, which is a functional scale. It's not a spasticity measurement per se. But it correlates with spasticity. Mm -hmm. And so does yeah. the Fugelmeyer, another test that we, the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer that we've talked about a lot, that they find this correlation between the Ashworth score and these other tests. And that makes mm -hmm. sense because if spasticity has been reduced, they're moving better. Yeah. And then today, I started wondering if there was any self-report measure for spasticity. And there really isn't but I found a couple of research articles where they did using a numeric rating scale. They bring up the question of it's important to include the survivor, the person who's living with spasticity to see how it impacts their lives. And I sometimes think we forget about that, or maybe we don't forget about it, but we don't know how to talk about it in our documentation. Although the spasm frequency scale would be self-reported, right? Is it, they give you a score sheet to go home with? I think so. I have to I've look never, at that again. Yeah, it's it's probably a good one. I agree. It's probably more in spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. And I should point this out. I'm not an expert at all with regard to spasticity and spinal cord injury. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of my own philosophy regarding this stuff, the neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction. Well, the, all bets are off if you have a cut between, if you have a spinal cord injury, that's a complete injury that doesn't allow upper motor neuron to speak to lower motor neuron. That is that you, the brain can't talk to the, to the muscles. Yeah. So spinal cord injury, I, I need to learn more about it. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get the woman who was the primary author on the stretch and spasticity Cochrane Review to come on because she's an expert and I think she'll be able to unlock that stuff for us, mm -hmm. but we'll see. She'll probably turn us down or just not answer the email. Or she'll probably be like, I can't believe it took them this long to ask me. 
Yeah. Uh, we yeah. published this in 2017. Here we are four years later. Yeah. What up? Yeah. And, and how many, after how many episodes we've recorded before we thought to ask her, we, as if I had anything to do with it. Well, you know, honestly, I didn't even know who the, the authors were, but then I looked up her name because there is an audio portion where she talks about what stretch does and doesn't do. And I caught her name at the beginning of the interview. And then I looked it up and sure enough, she was the lead author. So anyway, we do have listeners in Australia, by the way. We do. Oh yeah. You don't look at those maps that tell you. Uh, I haven't looked the- in a while. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. There you go. Do you want to continue on with how to measure this stuff or what do you think? Well, I think that you should talk about um, the modified Ashworth. So a lot of times what therapists claim is their measurement of spasticity is they observe it. I know it when I see it. But of course, the problem is, what are you seeing? Are you sure it's spasticity or is it a intentional co-contraction of a muscle to stabilize them during gait, for instance? So it's very hard to tell Mm. if it's spasticity or just normal muscle activity, given their inability really to control those muscles. You could move the limb through its range of motion and you kind of get a feel for it, you know, and you might note that there's a spastic catch. But the problem is none of those observational kinds of things or those feel things are quantifiable. You don't have a five-point scale, so you don't know if you're headed in the right direction or not. One of the tests that's more quantifiable, and I'm going to offer four, the Ashworth, a clonus scale, resting posture, and then, of course, the Tardu. And all of those are very quantifiable. So resting posture is kind of cool. You let the limb rest. What is the angle that it rests? And you measure that angle and get on with your life. And you hope that that angle increases over time. Okay. The clonus scale, classically, it's done in the ankle, right? The foot's dangling and you shove it up towards the ceiling. That puts the plantar flexors, the muscles that move them in the opposite direction of where you're moving them into an overstretch and muscles hate to be overstretched. So the spastic muscle then counteracts your pushing up by pushing down. They're trying to protect themselves, not be overstretched. Okay. But you're still pushing up. So you get these beats of clonus and Clonus can be infatigable. So it's kind of like if I were to do it as a, a sound, it would be like dun, 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 dun. Um, literally, you'll hear people put their foot on the floor and you'll hear this. And it can be infatigable. So it would be. So the clonus scale is simply the therapist or a caregiver. You can't really do it on yourself pushing them in one direction and seeing how many beats. Typically it's done at the wrist or at the ankle. And that's where you see most clonus. And then you just got to count really rapidly. So you push it up and you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, And then it starts to fatigue and you go, my number is 10. That's the number on the clonus scale. You write down your number and you hope the number of beats goes down over time. That's seen as a good thing. So you have resting posture and the clonus scale, and then the modified Ashworth. And I would say as a general tool, if you are a clinician, the modified Ashworth is reliable, it's valid, it's quick to do, it's easy to do, but mistakes can be made. So it's a four-point scale, and there are problems with the scale. For instance, a zero, we're going to do the elbow flexors. So we're going to go from full elbow flexion into full elbow extension. Now, 
spasticity is velocity dependent. The clinician or the tester has to add the velocity. How much velocity? The entire joint angle. I don't care if you're doing the the hamstrings and you're going from knee flexion into knee extension or the elbow flexors from elbow flexion into elbow extension or the wrist flexors from full wrist flexion into full wrist, whatever it is. It's always the same thing. One second throughout the range of motion. Sometimes they describe it as as fast as the fall of gravity. So if you were to hold your elbow in full flexion and then just drop it, that's how fast it is. It's quite fast. You're adding the velocity and you have this four-point scale. So the first problem with the Ashworth is the score of zero. That means there's no resistance. You pull them from full flexion into full extension throughout the arc of the range of motion. You feel clear sailing. There's nothing stopping you. The problem is there's no way to score flaccid. I mean, that should be like a minus one mm-hmm. because it would feel different than normal tone. I would say that if you're going to note it in your notes, you would say, I-, I did the modified Ashworth and this person is flaccid in the elbow flexors. A zero is they feel normal. Then you get to a one. A one is the first inkling of spasticity a really important score because it tells you something's trying to get through, especially early recovery. A one is a quick catch and release at the very end of the range of motion. They're in elbow flexion, you're pulling them into extension and everything feels fine until that last little bit, there's a quick catch and release at the very end of the passive range of motion. A one plus, and this is what delineates the modified Ashworth from the Ashworth, a one plus is a slight muscle spasticity in less than half of the passive range of motion. So you get through half the range of motion, the first half, and it feels fine, but you feel it in the arc of the second half. And a two is exactly the same thing, only more than half the range of motion. So the big difference between a one plus and a two is, is it less than half the range of motion or more than half the range of motion? A three in clinical trials, Usually a three gets kind of iffy and you don't want to include these people, but sometimes you do. Maybe you're measuring spasticity. It's throughout the range of motion. First of all, in a zero, one, one plus, and two, your hand isn't slowed down. Remember, it was the entire range of motion within one second. And in all those, your hand doesn't slow down. There's, you know, you can get to the end of range in one second, but a three, it slows you down. You are pulling them and you're fighting them into elbow extension. You're fighting them and you're fighting them and you're fighting them. And then you go, ooh, I feel the bony end feel. That natural bony end feel, you look at the passive range of motion on both elbows. They're about the same. So you know that end feel isn't contracture. It's the bony end feel of the elbow extension. So that's a three. You're fighting them throughout. And then a four is also a problem. Kind of like the way a zero doesn't tell you if they're flaccid or they're just normal. The four doesn't tell you anything either. First of all, it could be a hard end feel where it doesn't belong. That's an indication of contracture. Or it's painful. They're screaming at you, you move me one more millimeter and we're going to get into a huge argument and I'm going to sue you. I'm going I'm to make sure you lose your license. That hurts. You can't go any further ethically. So that's a four. So if it's a hard end feel or it's painful or it's an empty end feel, maybe that person is insensate and you're pulling them through and you go, wait a second, I can't pull them anymore. This person doesn't feel stuff and I'm afraid of tearing something. I feel like it might tear. All of those are fours. 
So there's the modified Ashworth in a nutshell. What do you think? Is it doable clinically? Well, I think it is. Yeah. Have you ever done the modified Ashworth clinically? No, I never have. Usually in classes, and um, I'm going to start, I'm starting to do talks again. And I'm trying to figure out, because the way I would do the modified Ashworth in when, when we're there is to have people, one person pretends they're spastic. So they get a feel of where in the range of motion this stuff would hit them. And then the other person tries to figure out what the other person is trying to act. So there you go. Sorry. I think that's a good way to teach it. That's how I teach it. Um, yeah. For the system that I worked for, anytime we wanted to use a new assessment, we had to go through a whole process and procedure to get it approved. Some battles I just didn't fight. So every time you wanted to, if you wanted to teach at the modified Ashworth, you'd have to get an okay for that? We, if we wanted to use it as an assessment tool, it had to be approved like as a system-wide assessment tool. I'm sorry. So I I missed that. I thought you meant to teach it. So you mean clinically? Yeah, clinically. Wow. That's weird. I mean, that that should be the the call of the therapist, right? I agree. I mean, that's our skill, right? Isn't that what we bring to the table? I thought that's why they taught us stuff in school. I thought so too. I thought that's why, you know, we need a certain number of CEUs, but maybe not. Maybe I was. I think some people just have different ideas about how things should be run. Yeah. Or the the higher ups don't want to have data that shows that they're not reducing spasticity despite the claim that they are. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's more of it. I'm just saying, how do you tell the difference between uh, spasticity and contracture? Sometimes they have so much spasticity that you can't move them. It's, it's a three into a four and you just can't go anywhere. Some Maybe the guy was a weightlifter and just like really strong and you just, and you got this little, you know, 110 pound physical therapist or occupational therapist who just can't do it. How do you tell the difference between a lot of spasticity and contracture? You do the test when they're sleeping because when they're sleeping, you're going to be able to range somebody who's spastic, but the contracture will not let you go anywhere. So are you saying we have to start working overnight? Look, OTs show up so damn early that they're going to be asleep anyway. Just do it then. That's true. It's true. You guys should be paid more because you just, you're there before the nurses are, it seems like most of the time, except yeah. maybe the, the last shift of nurses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else did I want to talk about? So I do have a document that I can put for the positions for the upper extremity um, because they have to be in the right position. Um, for instance, the elbow, when you're doing the elbow, you're actually doing the brachial radialis. So the forearm has to be in neutral. The instinct is to want to supinate them and do the biceps, but that's not the muscle we're looking for. It's the brachial radialis, so the elbows are neutral, but there's some other um, positional things, and I'll put that in the show notes. You can do it in the lower extremity, and I mentioned this before. I think I'm the only person that wrote down the positions for the lower extremities. I think other people have done it since I did it, but I'm going to put that document in the show notes as well. There's a few other things about the modified Ashworth. It should be done in supine. The Tardu is done in supine. So should the Ashworth. Don't do the test more than three consecutive times in a row because we know that stretch does have a short-term impact. And so you'll start to get these very diminishing scores because now you're, you know, you're ranging this muscle that was spastic. And now because you're ranging it, it's less spastic. And also ask them if there's any pain in the arc, because if you're going to move it rapidly and repeatedly, you don't want to hurt them. So should we move on to the Tardu? 
I think we should. For some reason, I don't have my notes on the Tardew. No. I think the only reason there's a modified Tardew is because of the research that was done over the years. So the Tardew, I've had to do it in clinical trials. It's a beast. I mean, it's not just that they do it at three different velocities, slower than the fall of gravity, the fall of gravity, and faster than the fall of gravity. Remember, the Ashworth's only done one speed as fast as the fall of gravity. Um, that's a good thing about the Tardu because people don't always move really rapidly. So you're going to get a f- this false sense of a heightened score with the Ashworth because you're doing it really fast. And But people don't move that fast. In fact, if you want to help somebody move that has spasticity, get them to move slower. Because it's velocity dependent. It doesn't matter if that velocity was by the therapist or by the person who owns the muscle. Yeah. So the Tardu is good that there's three different velocity, velocities, but that makes a longer test. The other thing is, as you know, Deb, you have to do goniometric measurements at the same time that you do in the tests. So you're trying to score them on a five-point scale, but you got to measure when the spasticity kicks in. And in our clinical trials, we use two people. One to do the ranging and measure the amount of resistance and the other to do the goniometric measurements. And the ranger, the person that was doing the movement would go there. And the person reading the goniometric measurements would have to catch the there. And you mm-hmm. hope you didn't lose too much time. Is that your sense about the Tardu? That it's kind of complicated? Well, it looked like something I didn't want to learn how to do. Isn't yeah. that lazy? Is that lazy? You know, if you're not in clinical research, why would you do it? The great thing about clinical research is they say, you're doing this test. And then you go, okay, I'm going to need every damn article on it. I'm going to have to talk to other people about it. And then I'm going to have to practice it. And then I'm going to have to get other people to practice it with me. And they go, yeah, take your time. Uh, yeah, the, the it doesn't stu- work that way. In the it clinic. doesn't <laughs> happen that way. I mean, unless they, you go to a CU course, you're not going to know it. But yeah, it's done at three different velocities. That makes sense. But you're also measuring when the spasticity kicks in. So it's not practical. It, it is. If you got a therapist, another therapist around or somebody else that can read the goniometer, or if you're just really good at goniometric measurements, or if you want to just kind of get a ballpark, maybe that will, will help. So we have maybe staying away from observational things that you can't quantify, but we do have some good measurements, resting posture, the clonus scale the modified Ashworth, and if you're a masochist, uh, maybe the uh, the Tardu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. What else do you want to talk about? Um, I don't. I talked about what I wanted to talk about. So the self-report scales. I think it's important to include some type of self-report scale um, because we want to include the survivors' experience, their lived experience of spasticity. We sure do. Maybe maybe we should talk about the French A activities index. I wonder if anyone uses that. Have, have you seen it used? I think we did use it for a clinical trial or two, but let me check my uh, folders and see if it's in there. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a measure of instrumental activities of daily living, for, and it's specifically for patients recovering from stroke. And they break the, there are three domains where they break the test into domestic chores, leisure and work and outdoor activities. And I think the concern then is just if people do those tasks or not, but it's a quick test to administer. It only takes five minutes and there's 15 items to rate. So um, hang on one second, please. Sorry. Yeah. 
it measures things like, so do you have the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab mm-hmm. website? Can yes. you, what about under descriptions? Can you just go over those? Because I think they that might help. Where it says int- instrument details. Um, Is that what you want to know? Let's I see. Thinking, I actually just downloaded it. Oh, you did? I did. Off of that website? Yeah, I just clicked on whatever I just read to you and it downloaded something. Under descriptions. Yeah, so if you click on instrument details, where do you see descriptions? I, I wonder if I... we have different pages. So, so uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to describe it. They ask if in the last three months, how often people have undertaken the following tasks. And so they have preparing main meals and washing up after meals. They have washing clothes, light and heavy housework, local shopping, social occasions, walking outside for more than 15 minutes, actively pursuing a hobby and driving a car or going on a bus. And then they have in the last six months, how often have you traveled on an outing or gone in a car ride, engaged engaged in gardening, household maintenance, reading books, and gainful work? And they, they have a description of some of these items like gardening outside. They break it down to light, moderate, and heavy. Same thing with household maintenance. So that's nice to help everybody understand how to think about those activities. Did you find it? Yeah. And I, I think it's really good that that's sort of the way that you're looking at it because you're right. Unless we get data from their actual life, uh, what good is this stuff? You know, sometimes the, you can measure something in this sort of you know clinical environment, but we know how accurate that can be sometimes. I mean, just look at blood pressure and the white coat syndrome where your blood oh pressure goes up because you're in this you know, crazy environment where they're about to give you a shot that's going to hurt your arm. And then you've got to tell them that you have, you know, prostate problems or whatever the problem is. And now you're embarrassed. And then they take their blood pressure. Like, ah! mm-hmm. So, yeah, we want to know what they're doing um, at home, um, like kind of like the motor activity log, which I'm sure you've heard of, which mm-hmm. is another sort of home test. All right. Should we wrap this up? Yeah. Okay. All right. So we should. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And now you can go out and measure spasticity on all your friends and neighbors and do it when they're sleeping. <laughs> because that's the most accurate score. <laughs> that got weird. Okay. Thanks, yeah, Deb. Thanks, Pete. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.